0: is week 3 of Manuary, and we have quite the book to discuss on today's episode, Lois Lowry's The Giver. The Giver was published in 1993 and won the 1994 Newbery Medal, and it's kind of the OG dystopian YA of our generation. The main character is Jonas, a 12-year-old boy living in a society that seems kind of great, but actually has a lot to hide. Here are a few things you need to know about the civilization in which Jonas lives. Choice and difference have been totally eliminated, along with weather, terrain, color, and even memory. They celebrate vague releasing ceremonies for the old and sick, which Jonas has come to understand give people a blissful journey into another, happier place. Teens are given pills when they begin going through puberty to eliminate attraction and other sexual urges. When children reach the age of 12, they are assigned a lifelong career and immediately begin special training to fill that role. As The Giver opens, Jonas is approaching his own 12th birthday, and he is given a very unusual assignment. He has been selected as the new receiver of memory, a highly respected position that also sets him up for a life of isolation, since stepping into it requires that he cut off most communication with his family and friends. Jonas must start training with the current receiver of memory, who explains that their role requires him to take on all of the memories and feelings that should be shared among the entire community. Remember, they've opted for a state of sameness so most people don't feel anything at all. Once the receiver teaches him the ropes, it will all be on Jonas. No pressure. Over the course of his training, Jonas learns many dark secrets about the world in which he lives. He realizes that while the people around him will never have to experience bad feelings, they also never experience good feelings. He regrets that there is no love. He learns the true meaning of release and comes face to face with his own father's role in releasing ceremonies. He's forced to consider if people can be wrong in committing certain actions when they don't have the information to know otherwise. It's pretty heavy stuff. In today's episode, we take a good hard look at these intense moral issues. We work through our feelings about the book's ambiguous cliffhanger ending and try to figure out the perfect audience for the giver. We also find parallels to the book in everything from Brene Brown and Black Mirror to Boy Meets World and The Hunger Games. Brett works in UX by day and spends far too much time, by his own admission, on Instagram and Twitter by night, where you can follow him at Brett S. Vergara. When he isn't reading, you can find him screaming about The Bachelor, politics, and how dang cute Baby Yoda is. I was first introduced to Brett as a frequent guest on one of my favorite Bachelor recap podcasts, Here to Make Friends. And now that the show is back for another season on ABC, I'm looking forward to getting all of his thoughts on Pilot Pete. In the meantime, though, it was really great talking to him about something completely different in our conversation about The Giver. Thanks so much for joining me, Brett. A big thanks also goes out to all of my Patreon sponsors. Patreon is a platform that allows you to contribute a few dollars per month to the production of SSR in return for a bunch of awesome rewards, including SSR merch, bonus episodes, book club chats, newsletters, and more. If you'd like to be part of the Patreon community for as little as a dollar per month, Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. You can also show your support for the podcast by leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes, and by following along on social media. We are at ssrpod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. If you'd like to help me spread the word about SSR, social media is a great way to do it. I especially love seeing you share the episodes you're loving on Instagram stories. Take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it, share it to your stories, and tag SSRPod so I can see. 2020 is the year that we grow this community even more. For all of your audiobook needs in this newish year, remember that Libre FM is the way to go. I even have a discount code to help you get it at a great price. Libra.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. As always, SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And enter code SSRPOD when prompted to take advantage of that discount. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Hoff, Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Brett. Welcome to SSR.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Thrilled to have you on the show and thrilled to be talking about The Giver. And I know that many of our listeners are equally thrilled to be hearing about this book. This one has been in high demand for a long time. So we're finally doing it. It's a big book to dive into. And I'm I'm really excited that you're here to do it with me.
1: Yeah. No, I'm really excited for this, too.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about why you picked this book? I feel like we, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and I can't remember... Why this is the one that was your choice.
1: Yeah. So with this book, so I'd never read it before, uh, but it was always one of those books where I would hear about it and be like, oh, yeah, I should have read that. You know, that, that seems like it would have been very much up my, up my alley. And then I would just have that be a fleeting thought. And then I just like would never read it. So this was just a very golden opportunity to finally stop procrastinating and actually read this book that I've been meaning to for a long time.
0: Well, I'm so glad that I finally facilitated that for you.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: We're here to help on SSR. So my experience (laughs) with this book is I remember being very young and like seeing it laying around my house. It was this like, you know, the old school black cover. It was this like tiny little mass market paperback. And I remember yeah. seeing it randomly stuck into my parents' bookshelf. And this was like the mid-90s. I feel like YA at that point wasn't really a thing. And I was like too young to be reading YA, although I read a lot as a kid. Yeah, um, yeah. And I remember just thinking like, oh, that's kind of weird. It's like not the same size as my parents' other books. And like, mm. what is this? Like, I don't understand what it is. And at one point, I either asked my mom about it or, you know, she presented it to me. And she was, like, so pumped about it, you know, and she had loved it Mm -hmm. and stuck it on the shelf. And I remember thinking, like, oh, this must be a grown-up book um, because my mom's a grown-up and she read it and, like, she reads grown-up books. And then at Mm -hmm. one point, like, you know, shortly after that, I realized maybe from somebody at school that, like, no, this is a book about a kid or a teen. And so Mm -hmm. I remember that being, like, very confusing to me because I was like, why is this a book about kids that my mom's reading? And I think that sort of speaks to this whole, like, interesting question of like the time before quote-unquote YA was officially a category and um, I think it like took time for the publishing industry to figure all of that out and luckily now we have this like whole world this this whole like world yeah yeah, of YA books but um, at the time like as an elementary school book obsessed kid like I was I was very confused by it but I read it and I think maybe my mom said that I should or encouraged me to and I was I was really young I was like in fourth or fifth grade and in hindsight like reading this book again as an adult I'm like wow I I can't imagine that I picked up on a lot of this book but I wanted to read it because my mom loved it and um yeah I I'm interested like you know I wish I could go back and be like what did you actually think Mm -hmm. was going on in this yeah. book because even as an adult there's a lot that I'm like still kind of trying to wrap my head around. It's pretty heavy but like obviously just like a yeah. really fascinating work.
1: Well, you know what was my thing. So one when you were just talking about when you would just randomly see the the giver laying around your house, my thought like with the cover specifically, it's just it's a really beautiful cover. It's like very mysterious. It very much captures the feeling of the book in its cover where there's just something kind of like dark and mysterious, but also also not necessarily entirely unnerving about it. There's something intriguing about it, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it almost seems like a book that would be laying around in the actual setting of the book. You know, like you could just see like Jonas walking around and just like in the in the uh, forgot the the actual term, but the library there. Yeah. And just like see a copy of The Giver. (laughs) Yeah. The annex. Right. You could almost see him like seeing a copy of The Giver in the annex. Like it seems like a book that would pop up there.
0: Oh, that's so true. I love that visual. I hadn't thought about that, but I love that. I (laughs) love that. Um, So we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how this book in particular and like fiction in general is kind of out of your comfort zone. So before we get into like more of a conversation about this book and, and share a little bit more background about it, I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about that. And I'm so grateful that you went out of your comfort zone to talk about this book with me on the show. Um, and I'd just love for you to share a little bit more about that experience with our listeners.
1: Yeah, no, of course. So I got into reading a bit later. Uh, I There was definitely certain books when I was a kid that I really, really attached to. Uh, and those were all fiction, too. And I think when you were just talking about this idea of like when you're, you know, kind of like in the early mid-90s, YA hadn't necessarily blown up into like the full... Branded category it is now, but it clearly was like very much still a thing. But I feel like all of the books that I really loved as a kid, I just sort of stumbled upon. Like they were maybe class reading, or it it just like wasn't. It didn't feel very organized to me. Like it didn't really feel like there was this cultural moment happening quite yet. So I had certain favorites like Ender's Game, which actually in a way Ender's Game. Has like a lot of... Have you read that?
0: I actually just read it recently for the first time for the podcast. And that was like okay. a very interesting experience, especially like with all of the stuff that's come out now about the author. Like it was hard to read that in the context of mm-hmm. everything yeah. I was reading. Yeah. But yeah, I just read it recently.
1: Yeah. So like there's even parts of Ender's Game that I could see kind of mirrored in in The Giver. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, as far as what my reading journey's more been like, I would say as an adult now... I feel pretty boring in my reading taste because it doesn't really tend to be fiction books. It doesn't even really tend to be like nonfiction historic books. It's more biographies. And I'm, I was actually really, really into self-help before that also kind of became like a, a boom. Uh, now I really like how that's very much become this whole blossoming thing, whether it's it's branded as self-help or whether it's self-development or kind of like whatever, like self-care, you know, kind of like whatever you really want to brand that as. But I was always a sucker for those books is kind of as far back as I can really remember, whether it was a career related thing or whether it was like a, a kind of like a dating relationship, psychology kind of angle. Um, like, for example, like Brene Brown. I'm a big sucker for Brene Brown, and all of her books are some of my favorites. But then just like biographies of like uh, like Anna Kendrick. And actually, like, I don't really have this huge opinion of Rob Lowe, but Rob Lowe's biography is really, really good. You know, it's um, so
0: weird. I was, I forgot what I was watching recently, but I, I was watching something and they were talking like in the last week about Rob Lowe's book. Maybe I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about Rob Lowe's book. And um, I was like, I don't, I'd never come across it, but they were raving about it. And it's not something I would have picked up, but I'm like, maybe I should check it out.
1: Yeah. You know, what's weird is I think I know exactly what you're talking about. I feel like it was either, either like armchair expert or like Conan's podcast or something because Oh you know
0: what I think it was um Billy on the Street is now on Maybe. is now on Netflix and I was binge Maybe watching it over it. the weekend and I think I was watching the episode with Rashida Jones yeah. and Wait, you're yeah, right yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> how yeah. weird yeah, that yeah, I just yeah, realized it.
1: that <laughs> <laughs> that's like uh, that's only like probably why that that reference came into my head but yeah I remember I don't even remember why I found that I read that years ago but it was just something that I saw glowing endorsements of it and i'm like that seems like an odd choice but okay and then i read it and the way that he would describe like certain i kind of felt like i i experienced an era that i didn't actually experience through his book i think that was a part of the appeal of it you know he was talking about being in the outsiders and kind of what the feeling of like the world was at the time and he talked about just these random stories of growing up in Hollywood. So I think that was more the appeal. It wasn't actually so much about Rob Lowe himself. It was more just, yeah, it, 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 it was almost like a very good atmosphere capturing book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But maybe that maybe that's not even their universal take. But I'm trying to think of why I, I uh, latched on to it so much. No, that's interesting. Uh,
0: and, and like weird that it's come up twice for me in a week and uh, maybe I have to check out Roblo's book now.
1: Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Well, that's also like a harder one too cuz he can be like a bit of a divisive character, I feel like too, but yeah, no, he's a uh, has a really good book, I don't know. And good. Well, uh, very different yeah, no, than The so like, Giver though, yeah. for
0: sure. Oh yeah,
1: no yeah, cuz like picking this book, usually I'm leaning towards Those books where it's a lot more self-development or biographies. So I haven't actually really read a proper fiction book like in a a good amount of time, although there have been series where I've really latched onto them. So I think and it's also usually the ones I get into when it's YA are all like the dystopian YA. Mm. So, you know, talk about like Ender's Game or Hunger Games, you know, books like that. So this very much captured that, too. So I was really excited and I really ended up liking it a lot, too.
0: Oh, I'm so glad. Well, it's interesting that you tend to read a lot of the dystopian books because obviously, like, we could talk for days about how this book, The Giver, is a precursor to a lot of those books. And I found a lot um, of sort of think pieces about that and how this book fits into that overall history Mm -hmm. of the category but a few quick facts on this book um for those who haven't thought about it in a while it was published in 1993 written by Lois Lowry who's like an extremely prolific YA author at this point she's written something like 40 books for kids and teens we've talked about a couple of them on the podcast and like a very interesting range of YA books so she wrote this book but other than that like a lot of really realistic fiction so she has a series called Anastasia Krupnik um, which is about just like kind of like your average like tween girl like living her life and doing very normal things. Um, Number of the Stars is another of her very famous books which is about the Holocaust. So this book is sort of like an outlier I think to a lot of the other things that she's written um, but it won the 1994 Newbery Medal which is obviously like a huge deal in the YA world. It's gotten so many awards um, and has been like lauded in so many ways um, in the time since it was published in 1993. As of 2014, it had sold more than 10 million copies, um, helped, of course, by 2014 movie adaptation, which I'm pretty sure tanked. I didn't find oh, the numbers, yeah. Yeah, but no, I, I was, think it did I was really actually, poorly. Yeah.
1: I, was, I was curious, but I, I didn't look at the actual box office number, but I looked at just Rotten Tomatoes and they were not a fan.
0: Yeah. So. I never saw it, which but everybody said, I know who saw it hated it. Yeah. It's sad. It, yeah, it should have um, been good. and had a great yeah, cast.
1: Yeah. yeah. Right. Taylor Swift yeah. is in that, right?
0: Yeah. Randomly, Taylor Swift. Yeah. Jeff Bridges is the <laughs> giver. Meryl Streep is like the chief elder. Alexander Skarsgård, right. Katie Holmes. Oh, like yeah. it's a really great yeah, cast. Yeah. So I, who knows what happened there? I don't know that I can watch it knowing how bad it is, but that did help book sales, which is good for the yeah. book. But on the other side, it's also been like frequently challenged. It was actually number 11 on the ALA's list of the most challenged books of the 90s um, and I'm sure we can talk about why that might be as we go forward but
1: yeah. Wait so by, by most challenged? What yeah. You mean just as a very ignorant question maybe.
0: No sure. Um, so most challenged by like parents, librarians. Oh, like re- yeah okay. Yeah. I, just, uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, so I figured that's what it was but you know, yeah. I, I didn't know who it was like oh, well, actually the writing, but like I I was wondering (laughs) if it was like keep this away from children challenge or just uh, criticize writing challenge. So got it.
0: Yeah, keep this away from children challenge. Although I did find like even on the Wikipedia page for this book, which I always check the Wikipedia page before I do other research. (laughs) um, Full disclosure everyone. There's like just an interesting set of like very kind of oppositional, critical like thoughts about this book and sort of like, you know, people who think it's good versus people who think it's bad, but just like in these very like I don't know, weird ways. So the Wikipedia page Mm. for this book is weird. Um, But I'd love to know, like, what your first impressions of it were, especially as somebody who hadn't read it before. Like, what did it feel like to you based on, like, having never read it? How did it stand up to what you thought it might be?
1: Yeah, so what I was, one, just as I kind of mentioned earlier, I did really, really like it a lot. I think at the beginning, it was actually a little bit, of um, a slower start for me when, when we were learning about Jonas and just setting up the society, I think I had to, I caught myself having to go back. Like I was like zoning out and just like reading without actually absorbing the information. But then once we got to like the ceremony of 12, that at that point, the book really started resonating with me a lot. And then it was really, really easy to go through the rest from there. But you know, what I was also really surprised by is how much it still surprised me as adult I really didn't see a ton of things coming which maybe I should have I think I probably could have pieced together a lot more a lot more things like you know the concept of releasing I just felt like very ignorant towards the end where I was like really like I feel like I'm once again, a kid that isn't really getting the message when someone <laughs> says, like, oh, yeah, your your dog went off to a farm. It's like, oh, <laughs> word. Like, cool. What That's farm? What can I, we so go visit? That farm, that farm sounds, like, legit. Cool. <laughs> yeah, so I felt kind of stupid at the end, just not picking up on kind of gimmies like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I was, like, really, really surprised by that. But, no, I really think they did a really great job at world building. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I just thought it was really, 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 really interesting. And I think I actually really want to, because there's three other books in this series, right? Yeah, there's really three others. Okay. Have you read those as well?
0: I read the next one. It's called Gathering Blue. And I, I read that because I remember, like, I don't think I knew that, Um, I don't think I knew at the time that I picked it up that it was a sequel to this book because I found it much later. I think it was published significantly later. Um, and there was a girl on the cover, and I, you know, I read had read a lot of Lois Lowry books before, and I was just, you know, like just looking for things to read, and then I realized the connection to The Giver, and then there's one called Messenger that published shortly after that one, but then Sun is the fourth one, and that came out in 2012, so that was like a lot okay. later than the others, and it was like mm. a huge deal when that one came out. I found while I was researching that Lois Lowry had like never wanted to write a sequel, um, and she was actually mm. pretty dead set against it. Like the editing is extremely ambiguous of this book, and that was by design. She didn't really want yeah, readers yeah. to know what happened next, but she got so much fan mail from kids that were, like, dying to know what mm-hmm. happened to Jonas. So yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. She kept going, but it's not really, from what I remember, Gathering Blue, it's not like... And then this is what happened to Jonas next. Like, it's not, it doesn't pick up exactly where it left off. It's just kind of in the same world. And I think you sort of just get a sense of what happened to them after.
1: Gotcha. Uh, Yeah, because I think that's also something that would have been different had I read this as a kid versus now, is I think as a kid, I would have gotten to the ending. And, you know, it's left off very, uh, like, fill in the blank and ambiguous, and I think as a kid, I've been like, what the hell? Like, I got through all of this and I don't even know, like, you know, what's what's in store on the other side of this hill and the sled. And I'm like, this is like, am I missing a chapter? Uh, you know, I'd be kind of pissed. But I think now I've experienced enough well-designed cliffhangers uh, where, yeah, I can I can appreciate that that method of, of ending and kind of letting it be like this choose your own adventure ending. Uh, so that's that. That's definitely something I thought right away. Like I kind of had this like, "Oh, you got me!" smirk when when it all ended on on this ambiguous note. So that 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 I think is like a different take for sure. Well,
0: it's interesting to me because when I was like reading, you know, various essays and like reviews and stuff um, before you and I jumped on to talk today, there's so much of a focus on the ambiguity of the ending in a lot of the stuff that I was reading, and weirdly, like that wasn't something that particularly struck me when I was reading it like of all of the mm. things that I felt about this book I guess one of like my burning questions or feelings or emotions about it wasn't like oh my gosh the ending and yeah. maybe that's just like not the kind of reader that I am I think I tend yeah. to like sort of take things for what they are often and yes. I'm like oh like that's the ending like that's just what the author yeah. made the ending but i don't remember being particularly like frustrated or overwhelmed by the ambiguity of the ending when i was a kid either so i thought that was yes. kind of interesting because like in every piece that i read it's just this like outrage about The ending, I found this one story in The Atlantic, um, and it's a conversation between two people who are reading The Giver as adults, so kind of doing what you and I are doing right now, and I'll include a link to that article in the show notes for this, because it's really interesting, and so much of what they were talking about is, like, their frustration with the ending, and I was like, I'm just, I'm not getting it, like, I'm sorry, you know, I maybe I just, like, missed how frustrating that was, but... Um, One of the quotes that I pulled out was they say it makes me wonder if the ambiguous ending of the book is a purposeful parallel of the message of the book itself the ability to choose versus having things told to you dictated Mm -hmm. or prescribed choosing is harder but in a free society we have to be able to do it for ourselves. And of course we value that the ending itself becomes about the idea of choosing versus having your choice taken away, which is obviously a big part of the theme of the book. And I think that's like a point well taken if you are somebody that's frustrated by the ending, like maybe thinking about it in those terms is helpful. Yeah. Lowry, though, also talks about how, you know, I I found some quotes from her about the ending because it's something that she's talked quite a bit about. And she talks about how, like, she actually as a kid thinks she would have enjoyed sort of an open-ended ending, but she thinks that, like, the moral landscape for kids today is, like, so much more complicated and ambiguous that she thinks that kids today, like, crave finality in a different yeah. way which yeah. I thought was like a fascinating kind of just like generational observation too
1: yeah yeah well I do think too where because I definitely craved an ending mm. but I wouldn't say I would go so far as to it would like diminish the value of the book for me I think if anything it would have like this like uh, this I would have like this fondness for it because I'd be like ah like you know it just really lead me with this unsettled feeling that would just stir, you know, mm-hmm. stir, uh, you know, in my conscience where I wouldn't be able to stop thinking about it, but had the ending been spelled out for me, it's like, oh, well, I don't have to think about it anymore. It's already been you know, it's already wrapped up. Yeah, they're okay, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, the yeah.
0: dog's at the farm. Everything's fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, the dog's at the farm. Like, cool, sweet. <laughs> He's chasing you know the chickens. Idea. Yeah, right, right, exactly.
0: So what were your, like, thoughts when we first were introduced to this, like, community that they're living in? Because it's this very interesting society, civilization kind of thing. It is reminiscent in some ways of, I think, Panem in The Hunger Games. Yeah. Um, very, like, bare bones kind of society. They have tons of rules. Everybody has a role that's prescribed, like, literally from birth until the day that they die. And in some ways, it seems, like, blissfully simple at the beginning. Like, yeah. it doesn't really seem so bad. What did you think yeah. about the way that was presented? Because obviously, really, like, yeah. it changes. Like, sort of the way we're yeah. meant to think about it over time evolves. But what yeah. did you think right, at the right. start?
1: You know what the thing is, is that in the beginning, again, it, it definitely does sound simple for sure. But I do think there's almost some things that they they got right that i feel like they could continue like we could adopt a little bit more as well and the two things that really jumped out at me was one like the sharing of dreams Mm. because i don't know if you noticed this but i feel like in general we just like don't talk about our dreams like people don't care about other person's dreams and that's kind of crazy to me because dreams are so fucking weird and we just decide that we would much rather add happy hour drinks Talk about oh you know like this client like just really you know grinding my gears you know that like we would much rather talk about like mundane stuff instead of like oh yeah in my dream last night I like rode a dinosaur <laughs> to work because like just what's like, there's just so much weird stuff to unpack in dreams so I almost like this idea of this ritualistic formulaic like okay we're just gonna like talk about our dreams but then also listen sharing of feelings every evening yeah. I like that too. Yeah, I mean, I I think we do that in a very general way of like, oh, like, how was your day? Oh, it was good. But but like, I really like bringing more attention to that. Really, it's like the, like a therapy session at the. At the end of every single night, that's that's kind of nice. That's kind of a good tradition to have. I know that they don't really therapize it because they don't really, uh, you know, see the value of true feelings and all that. So that's a flaw there. But you know, there's there's something to work with there, kind of.
0: Yeah, they're super communicative, or at least like they think they're being super communicative. Like yeah, yeah. I remember thinking at the beginning, like there's sort of this crazy contrast between kind of like the bare bones nature of their lives and like the amount of time that they spend talking about their thoughts and their feelings. Like I think, mm. yeah. I don't know, in in real life, you know, as you think about it, like I just think that those two ideas don't necessarily always go together. When I think about people in my life that tend to like stick to the basics or like don't add a lot of frills to their life, those aren't the people that also want to talk about their dreams and their thoughts and their feelings. So mm. it's interesting that like those two things exist sort of in such like a structured way in this civilization. So I I had a lot of thoughts at the beginning about like, you know, what are we meant to believe about the fact that these people are so communicative about their feelings? And like the families just seem to have this expectation that you're going to share everything with each other, which is so not something that like, I think we're conditioned to do in our lives. Um, So I thought that was interesting. But like, I agree, very productive and something that you know, we could probably take from in some measure. Um, also, yeah. their, like, emphasis on, like, the precision of language, and they, like, punish mm. their, their kids when they aren't able to use, like, the exact
1: adjective yeah. or... Yeah, like, hi- like hyperbole is the devil in, in this society.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, and, like, also, I, I guess what, that you know makes more sense later, but...
1: You know what I was thinking about with this is that in this society, Twitter would be doomed, because oh that's God. all... Hyperbole is like I think about when I'm like tweeting about Bachelor or something, it's just it's all hyperbole. It's like you just like hate this immediately or love that, you know, just Stan culture would be out just completely out.
0: Yeah, as I'm dashing off tweets about Luke P, I'm not being especially precise with my language <laughs> yeah, or like about yeah, like Hannah yeah. and Dylan in Bachelor in Paradise. I'm like not exactly <laughs> being word. precise about my words.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, all yeah, of this like
0: language stuff, I guess it makes a little bit more sense it circles back a little at the end when we come to understand that like they actually don't know very much at all, but like they think that they do. I mean, I guess there's this whole idea about like them not knowing what they don't know and Mm -hmm. maybe like the author is trying to drive that home more by like showing that they seem to think they're so evolved at the beginning but um they have these like weird formulas around like you know if somebody says I'm sorry they have to be like I accept your you know there's these very like formulaic responses to things and like they hate rudeness which I appreciate but it's this like almost (laughs) very manufactured politeness and To your point, like, it seems kind of nice a little bit that people are, quote unquote, programmed to behave that way. But obviously, as you move through the book, we realize that, like, that's not so great.
1: Well, you know what that reminds me of, too? And, And like you were saying with this book, I wouldn't necessarily know, like, when, like, comparing to when this was written to when other things like this in our culture were first thought of and then published and and all that so the timelines can get messy but you know you immediately think of like the hunger games but i was thinking of like black mirror a lot too Mm. you know this was very much just like this uh it's like black mirror light but also sometimes not even light and what i kind of like thought about there have you watched black mirror
0: i haven't i've heard and like read about it but i know i need to watch it
1: yeah well, basically, there's, like, this one episode called called Nosedive, which I would recommend, like, that's the episode that people start with. And that episode talks without, like, giving stuff away. It revolves around this society where everyone can rate interactions with each other. So if you said, like, a rude thing, th- then I would kind of deduct you points and, and, and all that. Oh, wow. Uh, and then towards the end, there's, like, it revolves around this person who is kind of, like, forced to, like, challenge those limitations that society uh is, is setting not necessarily by your own choice too i'm trying so hard not to N- not no to i know <laughs> it's so
0: good
1: it sounds um, really interesting so though
0: and also like a fucking like black hole of like
1: uh, how yeah. wrong
0: or how right it could go
1: yeah yeah exactly where it's also too you can see that that world also like this one it's like it can start with the best of intentions and then just go real real to shit real quick and then you just like uh You look back, it's like, oh, we maybe got rid of some good stuff, too.
0: Yeah. In theory, like, this could be good, but maybe we didn't think through it quite all the way through. Um, And that's sort of the whole experience of reading this book. What was your vibe on Jonas at the beginning of the book?
1: I actually don't necessarily know if I fully connected with him right away. And that's kind of what I was saying with uh, it almost like kind of like taken. A little bit to really get like the gears going i think i was really starting to connect with jonas more once we got to the annex and all that but yeah it actually like took me a little bit like i didn't really and this could maybe even speak to kind of like how the society is set up and how the book is written but nobody's personalities were really grabbing me yet like everyone was kind of blending in together which i suppose makes sense but there was nobody that I was really latching on to. Like, okay, like I'm really invested in this person. So that's kind of like where I was at.
0: Yeah, he doesn't have an especially strong personality. And I'm, I'm realizing more and more like over the course of doing this podcast and like reading just sort of like takes on kid lit from different experts. There's a lot of um, protagonists of kid lit and YA books that are just meant to kind of be like proxies for yeah. anyone. And so like characters like Jonas, I think, are often written in these, like, vague ways in books like this that are kind of heavy and, like, have these big themes around them so that kids can more easily, like, map themselves onto the characters. Like, you don't find that as much, I feel like, in more action-driven YA books or even, like, your sort of -of run-of-the-mill, like, high school stories because we're obviously not trying to grasp these, like, really big concepts. But I think in books that are meant to be, like, a little bit... Um, sort of harder to wrap your arms around. Often the character is just like a little bit less of a strong personality. But I agree with you. Like it's hard to connect with Jonas. And And I remember actually when I read this as a little kid... Um, you know, and not only because I was probably like a nine year old girl and, and not making it difficult to connect with like a 12 year old boy, um, just yeah. because when you're nine, like a 12 year old seems so much different than you. And then, you know, <laughs> yeah, in that yeah. like very heteronormative way. I was like, well, I could never relate to a boy. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. but I remember like finding him hard to understand as a kid. And I think I probably mm-hmm. pushed through it because like my mom thought that it was a good book. So I was like, I love it. Too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, yeah. he's like definitely kind of hard to connect to and and you do like get a better sense of him as you go. I feel like what I thought was interesting about him at the beginning was more his family. Like his sister is actually kind of interesting. Um, she has like a bigger mm-hmm. personality, I think. Like at the beginning, yeah. she is kind of the one that like seems to take a lot of the attention in the family and like she's the one who's asking a lot of questions and talking a lot and Jonas kind of exists in relation to her. I also thought and this is just like a small thing um but I noted it that in his family so listeners if if you don't remember kind of one of the the major things about this civilization is that you're like assigned your job when you're 12. In in Jonas's family his dad was assigned the role of nurturer so he basically like Takes care of newborn babies, and his mom is this a big wig in like the Department of Justice or whatever that equivalent is in this society. I thought it was kind of interesting because that's like, you know, for a 1993 book, like that's a pretty progressive kind of like, again, like gender role heteronormative swap. Um, And that's something that I think you would see like in a YA book written today where an author would make a very specific point to be like, no, in this family, like it's the dad that takes care of the babies and the mom that has this hardcore job. Um, And so I I really appreciated that in 1993 and, you know, I guess this is meant to be sort of a futuristic society. And so maybe the author turned those like old rules on their head, um, you know, thinking that this was supposed to be super progressive. But it is. And I thought that
1: was cool. Also, when you were talking about the jobs, that I think is another reason why. Uh, his sister, you know, might might be a little bit easier to to connect with because, you know, she showed an interest in like a possible job that she might want or like one that she could potentially be good at. And that was kind of Jonas's whole point is that it's like, I don't really know what I want to do. <laughs> you know, he was just very like, I don't really have like anything that's really, uh, you know, pulling me or anything. So I think that that was like another part of that, too. And I actually think maybe that that undecidedness was almost like the most relatable thing about him where he gets to this time where it's almost like when he has to choose a major at college, he's still like, I don't really know what I want to do with the rest of my life, you know? It's like, okay, all right. Yeah, I was just going to say,
0: I feel like he's like very relatable to like a 17-year-old like getting ready to go to college and like, yeah, Yeah. you have to go to college, but you don't know what you're going to do with your life, but not as relatable to an 11-year-old who might actually be reading this (laughs) book and like trying to relate to somebody their own age.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's probably another point too, like where... I wouldn't have necessarily had that same thought, you know, when I was, say, like 11, 12, whatever, as someone who had not gone to college and had to make this, like, well, for me, major decision or had this major decision thrust upon them. I was just kind of bebopping around at 11 or 12, so I wouldn't have been able to relate in that way. So I think it actually, in that sense, I could, I could relate to more as an adult. Yeah, totally.
0: And I feel like Jonas would really like to be bebopping around. You know, he's, he like oh, yeah. doesn't yeah, feel yeah. directed at all. The thing that I would say about Jonas is that he's just, he's like nice. Like he's a nice yeah. kid. And and yeah. nice is actually like one of my least favorite. Like I hate, I hate when people are like, <laughs> oh, you're so nice. Um, yeah. And I guess sort of in the way of like the civilization when I think about it, because I'm like, nice isn't really like a word that mm. says anything about somebody.
1: Um, Yeah, it's a precision of words thing. It's like, okay, what do you mean by
0: nice? Right. Am I kind? Am I compassionate? Am I empathetic? Whatever. But I actually feel like what I would say about Jonas is that he's nice. At least at the beginning of the book, that's kind of like the main thing that we get about him. Like he's nice to his parents. He's nice to his friends. He doesn't have a lot of direction. Um, He's like nice to everybody. And he's like nervous about this big ceremony that's coming up where he's going to be assigned his job. But like that seems like a normal reaction to have when you're 12 years old and about to be like start on your path of eternity
1: well and that's also too that's i think like an interesting well kind of probably very clearly intentional choice too where it's like if you had someone who was very impassioned as a little kid and they kept like breaking rules and all that the transformation that he ends up having later in the book where he starts getting exposed to these different experiences and feelings and love and and all that and then just showing how that changes him and his values and all that you wouldn't really be able to have that same arc if he was already a passionate person
0: that's true yeah he kind of goes with the flow and he's in some ways he's like the ultimate rule follower because he just doesn't disrupt anything in a society that like lives and dies by rules so he just like is very amenable to whatever anybody tells him to do right right they start this ceremony. Um, it's the big day. There's, like, all this excitement. It it reminds me a little bit of the reaping from The Hunger Games. There's some of those <laughs> yeah. vibes. Um, again, there's some, like, you know, nuggets of each of these books that shows up again and again, you know, across each era of dystopia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Although Lois Lowry, in hindsight, was like, I didn't set out to write a dystopian book. Um, maybe that just because that wasn't, like, a thing in 1993 yeah. when she yeah. wrote it. Right. Um, but the idea is that each kid who is 12, because they just kind of, like, are categorized based on their age, like they don't actually have birthdays. They all are mm-hmm. sort of like, they turn 12 on the same day yeah. according to the society because there's no individuality. Like everybody is just a community and everybody like moves around in groups. So um, at this ceremony each kid is like called up based on I think like the the general time in which they were born. Very upsettingly to Jonas, his number is skipped. Yeah. Um, and so, the whole, his whole other, like, kind of class, his whole grade um, is all assigned to their jobs. And there's like, yay, like, that's so exciting, congrats. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like very excited about most of their assignments. And he's left to the end. And he's like, this has never happened before. What does this mean? What did I do wrong? And you yeah. can totally, like, feel that anxiety um, yeah. of what yeah. it would feel like at that yeah, age, yeah. especially yeah. to be like, oh shit, like, what does this mean? What's going to happen to me? I didn't do anything wrong.
1: I I do really think that was the first moment where I was like, Oh, okay. I'm like invested in him now. Cause that's like my thing, like my biggest fear across the board, whether it's relationships or being, or in a project or whatever is isolation, like that will just be what destroys my, my psyche. You know, like I'm one of those people that like, I'm, I'm like a weekend, you know, I need to have at least one social plan. Or if I'm, if I'm like, in my apartment Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, by Sunday, I'll start being like, do I have any friends? Like, I wasn't, you know, (laughs) it'll just start slowly eating at me. So, I mean, I'm kind of like skipping ahead a little bit, but that's, that's fine. you know, with like his, you know, training that I could really, uh, you know, I could really see just the isolation of it all and not being able to talk about it and not being able to share your own experiences and also be able to kind of relate to other people's experiences that would be the hardest pain and all that
0: i was gonna say even if the mere possibility of possible of like potential Mm -hmm. isolation during the ceremony made you a little nervous i'm sure that what goes down later in the book like really
1: triggered you because he he, he
0: gets super isolated toward the end there
1: where yeah, it's like, oh, man, this, like, high honor sucks.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Um, he wants, he wants to be, like, commended by the community. I'd rather just go with the crowd.
1: Yeah, yeah, right,
0: right. Um, so the reason that Jonas has been made to wait is because he's received this, like, as, you know, this kind of, like, special honor, and um, he, unlike the rest of... Of the crowd who have been assigned to "quote unquote" normal jobs is going to be the receiver of memories, which yeah. is not an assignment that he even seems to have been aware of before. Which I thought was interesting. Like, unlike the yeah. other elders in the community who seem to be more public, the receiver of memory does not seem to be like really public or out there. Like, I think um, Jonas said that this was actually the first time he even like seen him because usually he doesn't leave the annex, and he only came out because like. In this particular year, they happen to be picking a successor for him. So um, he's, like, definitely sort of an unsung hero of the community. But he's a big deal because he basically, like, the way he explains it up front carries all of the memories um, on behalf of the whole community. So as we've hinted at, like, this is a group of people that, like, seems to talk a lot about their feelings and their dreams. But they don't really, like think a lot about what's come before um, and things are pretty simple. So somebody has to like bear the brunt of actually like remembering all of the things that other people don't think about on a day-to-day basis and what Mm -hmm. that means like becomes illuminated throughout the book more and more. But that's kind of the explanation that Jonas gets up front, which It's like not that helpful. Like let's be honest. That doesn't give him a lot to go on. Well, especially
1: too like when when you're being described like, Oh yeah, there's lots of other things, you don't know those other things. So it's like, okay, cool. You know, you don't really know what's like fully in store for you. Also another thing I thought about too was, you know, him being saved for the end and getting this high honor. I felt bad for the other kids. Because they just got this, like, I'm, like, going to be a nurturer. Like, I'm excited. This is going to be cool. And all of a sudden, it's like, we saved the best for last. Jonas is going to get this high honor. So then I would be sitting there in the crowd, like, well, fuck me, I guess, being a nurturer. I was excited, but I guess, like, I'm just, like, shit compared to Jonas over here. So I would get the immediate, especially if I was a a 12-year-old, oh, I would be such a little brat about it. Yeah. You know? I, I, I wouldn't be able to have, like, the uh, the ability to swallow my pride as much as maybe now. Uh, you yeah, would the jealousy have to live in a society
0: real. where, like, politeness was mandated to you if you were actually going to be polite to the person.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think uh, maybe that's why it's in place, is that when you make high-profile announcements like that, you can't just get bullied.
0: Yeah, no, but it's true though. Like, I was thinking about how, I mean, outside of obviously, like, sort of the science fiction nature of this story, and, you know, these are like crazy circumstances that these kids are living in. But, like, at the end of the day, there is this universal, like, social thing that happens among kids at 11, 12, 13 years old. And I think Jonas's mom actually, like, mentions it at the beginning of the book, where she's like, you're getting to that age where the kids that you've hung out with before, your friends, you're gonna start to split up. Like, you're not necessarily going to be doing yeah. the same things. And, and in the context of this book, it's because they're all now being trained for their jobs, which
1: yeah. is, yeah. you know, in
0: in life, that's not what it is. In life, it's about, like, no, when you're 12 or 13, you start making decisions about what you're actually interested in doing yourself. It's not yeah. just about, like, what your parents are encouraging you to do or what classes you're in. Um, and so I think it's, like, a really deliberate choice that the author made yeah. to be, like, this, yeah. this is happening at 12 or 13 when kid readers who are that age might have some sort of like sense of what it feels like to go through that process. and I think like yeah. Jonas, as you said, he's so isolated because he's been called out in a way that like probably secretly pisses a lot of people off. Like they're yeah. not allowed yeah. to say that it annoys them because mm-hmm. they have to be polite. But like, yeah. there's probably some weird vibes going on with his friends. Um yeah. You know, he has all these roles. He's not allowed to talk about his training, which is a unique experience because of course, at the end of every day, like, all the other kids are having to report back to their parents, like, yeah. what their day was like, and it's much more open. And then even the fact that his best friend, Asher, couldn't have gotten a more different assignment than Jonas. Like, he's oh essentially, God, like, the new know. Leslie Nope. He's, like, yeah, the new, yeah, like,
1: yeah, right, right.
0: director of recreation, which also he's, yeah. like, 12 years old. I love that they've already decided he's the director of anything. Um, Wait, so, wasn't
1: he assistant director? Oh, maybe
0: assistant director. Best, but, that's, like, the
1: immediate <laughs> thing that I thought of where it's, like... What, what, like, different, um, right. like, how, how could they tell at, like, 12 years old? Is like, okay, like, you're, that would almost be kind of shitty. Where, or where, is the boss just, like, 14? Like you know, it's like you your recreation, like, you got assigned to recreation, but you're got not good enough to be director. It's like, we determined that, like, there's something a little off. Right, like, you're pretty fun, here. but you're not like, that fun. Yeah, no, no, right. So it's, like, assistant.
0: Yeah, you're assistant yeah. to the most fun. <laughs> um And your boss is probably 15. The director is 16. Yeah, yeah,
1: right, right.
0: But it couldn't have been any different than, like, what Jonas got, which is, like, this most intense, like, heavy responsibility. Um, So I think, like, just the sense of, like, being set apart from your friends. Jonas, like, has this experience where I think he, like, casually tries to go, like, chat with his friends after the ceremony. He's like, hey, guys, what's up? Like, that was pretty (laughs) cool, huh? And they're like, yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That that felt a little
1: too real. That, That hit. That hit hard. Yeah, little, I felt for him
0: in that moment. Oh, yeah. He's going through some weird stuff, but we can all relate to that. Um, but he starts yeah. his training. He's been warned that there's going to be all this pain. And at first, he doesn't get it because um, the first memory that's like physically transmitted to him, and this happens when he like lays down on this table in this like creepy building called the Annex, <laughs> Um, And the giver like puts his hands on him and like transmits feelings and memories to him. And the first thing that he experiences is snow because we find out that like they don't have weather. You know, we we learn throughout the book that there's all of these things that the community doesn't have. They don't Mm. have weather. They don't have they don't have terrain. He's never seen a hill before. He doesn't know what temperature feels like. He, they don't have color. Um, yeah. so the reason that he was sort of selected to be their new receiver of memory is because the the like elders realize that he is able to see flashes of color, and so he has mm. like this like vision that most people don't have. So the first thing he experiences is snow and like sledding, and he's like, "Oh, this is lovely. Like, what's scary about this? Mm-hmm. Nothing painful." Mm-hmm. But we find out that like the Giver is actually going to also like have to transmit feelings of hunger to him, and like. He's going to yeah. have to, like, experience war. And not only is he going to have to watch it, but, like, he's going to have to be the one to, like, yeah, yeah, actually yeah. feel it. Which is, like, pretty fucked up.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is just, like, uh was, like, vir- where was, like, virtual reality at in, in the 90s? Yeah, seriously. Try- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of, like, where in that stage, you know, this is almost, like, kind of like a precursor to that whole thing, too.
0: I have no idea. And it, it's weird to read this in 2019 because, like, a lot of it, sort of the science fiction stuff feels... Like not you know particularly groundbreaking to us, but mm-hmm. if you think yeah. about the fact that she wrote this in the early '90s, you're like, wow! Like she was thinking about some like pretty wild stuff at yeah. the time. Yeah. Like some of these things probably were very far in their in- their infancy, and like she like the virtual reality stuff. Like yeah, she was really digging into that at a time when other people probably weren't.
1: Right.
0: Um. So yeah, Jonas is like feeling a lot for a lot of people. Um. And he is also like just kind of starting to realize that the people around him have numbed themselves to a lot of things so something that came up before that we didn't mention is that when kids in the community are like 12 or 13 they start taking these pills because they experience something called a stirring which is sort of just like a weird veiled word for like puberty or like yeah. sexual attraction yeah. because like one day when he's reporting his dream to his mom before he's not allowed to do that anymore he's like oh i kind of had this dream where like my friend was <laughs> naked um yeah. and it's like oh no big deal like we will not talk yeah. about what that means but here start taking this pill so <laughs> the kids are medicated sort of to, to tamp down any feelings that they have of like attraction or feeling because like there's no real relationships in this community either like there's these matches that are made and then they are given these children like they're just sort of, like, taking out all of the, like, feeling and yeah. pleasure of life. They're medicated as soon as they feel pain. So Jonas is realizing that, like, he's been taking these pills to get rid of his, quote-unquote, stirrings. Um, yeah. as he's spending time with the giver and, and being transmitted all of these feelings, he's like, oh, well, wait. Like, I I, there's something confusing <laughs> about this because I feel like maybe you we were supposed to feel some of these feelings. And then in a very sort of, like, garden state move, um, he stops taking the pills And realizes that he, like Zach Braff, is gonna start to like feel all the feelings, (laughs) you know, cue the shins playing in the background. But, you know, I thought that was interesting too. And like he starts to just wanna feel things. And what he learns from The Giver basically is that at some point or another, this civilization has opted for sameness. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the memories that, Jonas and then the former giver there's the former receiver are carrying are all memories from like before sameness at the beginning when they first meet we just think it's like general memories but then we learn that like no most of these memories come from like a time before conformity was the most important value and it's just like it raises a lot of questions And I think this is where like for me the ending didn't matter as much because I just was like so fascinated by the way that all of these concepts are presented in such like a tangible way. So I'm like, I don't care about the ending. Like this is just cool to think about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, I kept like getting playfully lost in the logistics of that. So like the, the pills, like the, um, that really, I was like, okay, just the logistics of all these children having to, because I think they said Jonas had a week where, his mom would remind him. And then after that, it was all up to him. I'm like, really? Just like a week? You yeah. don't want to like check in a little bit longer and like you really trust kids with this responsibility like every single night. They're just like going to take this pill that they have no idea really what it does. And uh, like, do they watch them every night take it? Like there's got to be some people flubbing it a bit. You know, Like, I, I think about the times that I've accidentally fell asleep without brushing my teeth. Like, how does that not happen? Like someone just Hanging out in bed, and they just like fall asleep on accident. It's like, oh, I didn't take my stirring pills. So
0: like, how does that right. not happen? But you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna trust the twelve year old assistant director of recreation yeah, to take yeah, his right. pill every night, please? he's no,
1: he's no director. Listen, <laughs> he's, he needs a little help, clearly. <laughs>
0: Yeah, he's not Egypt. sure how to recreate fully on his own. No, that's yeah. so true. Like, you have really high expectations on these kids for them to take these pills that are all important every night. The logistics yeah. are stressful. I guess that's why they have I to know. have this very, like, you know, routinized society, all these rules.
1: I mean, that's a, the whole thing is I think they they feel the... Well, actually, would you, like, really say that they, they really feel like the ramification of rules? Because in a, in a way they do because they're, they, they're chastised mm-hmm. for every, like, little... Language slip, slip up and all that. But at the same time, they don't necessarily feel the brute force of rules because they don't really know what that is. So they don't know what it means to be released and, and all that. So,
0: yeah, it's I don't a know. Question. It's almost.
1: Yeah, it's almost kind of like like how scared of the rules are they? Yeah, I don't know. Because like with with criminals, for example, I know that they they said that it was like they get two chances and then they're released. Right. Yeah, I think that? the criminals are released. Okay. But then like they have like a fairly okay. No, I guess they don't really I don't I guess like they don't really view release positively. I guess it depends on who's being released. Yeah, that's true. Like if true. it's an elder. Yeah, so it's like if it's an elder then they're like, "Oh, word. Like they're going to have like a fun time." But they seem to view certain people being released as it not being a good thing, just not being sh- even if they don't know what that fully means. Yeah, and releases
0: are this sort of like vague ceremony that Jonas talks about at the beginning um, where it's like, oh, this person was released and we don't know where they go, but like they go elsewhere. And I think like you said, like there are certain people who, um experience release is almost this like respectful ceremony like like the old people in particular, they talk yeah. about like, oh, they're taken into this special room and everybody's like crying and happy yeah, like for celebrating them. Celebrating
1: their accomplishments. And, right. Yeah.
0: It's yeah. a good thing, or like even with the babies that are like um not doing well, it's like, you know, we're this is a kind thing that we're doing, you know, it's like a positive thing when, when they go elsewhere, um and they're released. But, yeah, I think with, um, like, criminals, their release is just, like... I don't know that it's necessarily viewed as, like, a negative thing, but it's more just, like, neutral. But, yeah, it's anybody who doesn't, like, seem to conform in some way because they're too old or they're, like, sick or they request release or they're criminals, like, they're released. And for most of them, we don't know what that means until... I would say, like, probably the most upsetting scene of the book and maybe, like, the climax of the book where after Jonas has learned all of this stuff from the giver and he's, like, starting to get a sense of, like, how screwed up his world is actually, um, is actually like, around him. He, like, doesn't know how messed up everything is. And then he really finds out how messed up everything is because the giver is like, you know what? I'm just going to sh- – let me just show you <laughs> – Let me just show you something real quick. And as we've mentioned, Jonas's dad is a nurturer and he works with all these babies. And so he's often talking about how the like especially ill babies are released and how, like, when when infants fail to thrive, they're released. And it's this, like, very nice thing that happens. Um, but the giver is like, you know, let me just, like, show you what, what that looks <laughs> well, like. What
1: your dad's up to. Yeah. yeah.
0: Like, let me just take you behind the curtain real quick on that. And because he's the giver, he has access to, like, all of the, you know, security footage in the community or whatever. And really what, what's going on when the infants are released is that they're, like, being euthanized. So um, Jonas then actually has to watch as these babies are shot with poison in a syringe and then they're, like, dumped down a garbage chute. And this is one of the reasons I think that the book was challenged because a lot of people... Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, um, that's, like, pretty fucked up. It's pretty fucked up (laughs) and, like...
0: Exactly. It's, like, I mean, as a visual, it's really fucked up and then a lot of people were sort of, you know, mistakenly accusing Lois Lowry of promoting infanticide or abortion or, you know, all of those other things. And she's obviously spoken out about how that's... You can take that out of context all you want, but at the end of the day, this is just, like, an upsetting image and, like, you can sit with that or not. So Jonas is, like holy shit, everything is a lie. I hate my dad. He's a murderer. And he freaks out. And and he ends up having this very honest conversation with the giver where the giver's like, no, this is is what they've been taught to do. Like, you and I have knowledge that's different. And at this point, even in the way that the giver's talking, he's, like, really setting them apart from everybody else. It's like, well, they don't know. Like, they don't know better. This is what they've been taught to do. You can't be mad at them. But Jonas sort of has to contend with the fact that, like, is something okay as long as other people like haven't been taught that it's wrong? I don't know. It's this whole very complicated moral question.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting when you said, uh, I mean, I definitely agree that this was probably like the most upsetting point in the book, but I think the part that hit me the hardest, maybe it's because it was like the first time, it was like really, really like an upsetting twist was when Jonas asked his parents if they love him, mm-hmm. and they were essentially like, "Are you fucking stupid? Like, what are you? Like, please be more precise with your language." I was right. like, "Oh, love is dumb." Uh, that one, yeah, like that one. It's like, yeah, like we we celebrate your accomplishments. Yeah. I was like, oh man, that's dark. Like that almost felt darker in a way than like, oh yeah, well, like obviously, release means death. I think I was starting to gather that. But I think I it does, like, make a lot of sense that love isn't a thing. But I think I was a little bit more. That one kind of just got deeper into the psyche. You know, there's obviously, like, death is a big part of a lot of um, dystopian societies and, like, dystopian novels like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can kind of see it coming at some point. But that was just uh, a little more
0: yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I actually pulled out one quote where the giver says to Jonas, it's true that it has been this way for what seems forever, but the memories tell us that it has not always been. People felt things once. You and I have been part of that, so we know. We know that they once felt things like pride and sorrow. And then Jonas chimes in and is like, and love. And so like he feels like, you know, more people should love. I wish other people could experience the positive side of all of this because a lot of it is like, yeah, we eliminated the bad feelings, the scary feelings, the pain. Um, but now Jonas knows that like, no, there's all this good stuff that went away once we decided to have everybody conform and, and feel the same and be the same and do the same things all the time.
1: Yeah. You know what I, I like really thought about a lot and I think um there's actually have you like read Brene Brown's
0: Yeah, I have. Not all of them, but I've yeah. read a few.
1: So there was, and I think like this conversation actually came from her, it was like an interview with, um, I'm like armchair expert, but it just in general, it's a theme with like the power of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And they actually talked about vulnerability when it comes to self-medicating, you know, so whether it's alcohol or drugs, and that's something that they, they got on where it's like, okay, if you're going through, you know, if you're like going through like a hard time or you're just like going about life, like, and you're, you're drinking. Um, you know, obviously, like that's going to make certain sad things a little easier to to handle, but it's also going to likely diminish the really like the the spikes. you know, it's really going to like neutralize you. So in a way, we almost, you know, we do that. Yeah. so uh, that that like was something that. And obviously, like they they touched on that too, with like the pills for stirrings. but uh, that's something that I kept thinking about more and more as the book got into the ramifications of taking away certain things is that like the taking away of both negative and positive, you know, maybe as a collateral damage, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, you're taking away choice. And I think this book like secretly is just sort of singing the praises of choice in all its forms, you know, because obviously the book is just being like, all of these things that have been taken away are good. You know, that's kind of like the underlying message of the whole thing. But I think that's true. I think the book is about like the danger of numbing yourself and in this society, like there's government-sponsored numbing of everyone. There's government-sponsored yeah, yeah. euthanasia, all of that. And Jonas is having to come face-to-face face with the, with what that means and, like, what it means not only for people's lives but also just for their emotional welfare and, like, what they're missing out on in terms of their feelings. Um, and it's frustrating because, like, how do you explain that to people that don't even know what it's like to feel? I mean, he doesn't even have a place to start yeah. with the people around him. And that's why right. the, yeah. the idea of even changing this and fixing it, which – In the end, he he and the giver do try to plan to do. Like, it's hard to figure out how to even start because you can't explain to people what they're missing if they don't even have any basis for what that is.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: There's a chunk at the end that I think, if you haven't read the book... Not, it's, I'm not against spoilers but I feel like you and I have gotten into a lot of sort of like the big questions <laughs> of this book already yeah. um, right. suffice to say that there's some more stuff that goes on where Jonas and the giver try to make things right it doesn't quite go the way that they planned and Jonas ends up of out on his own and as we've mentioned the ending is ambiguous where you don't quite know if he lives or dies. Um, If you haven't read the book I highly recommend that you read it. If you have read it I think it's really an interesting book to come back to. We have not even begun to cover like all the interesting stuff in here so please read it, read it, read it. It's a really great one and obviously so much to talk about in this book. Um, I know that you didn't read it when you were a kid Brett so we can't really speak to like how this compared to your experience reading it then but I would say like on the whole how would you characterize your experience reading it as an adult? You've spoken to it kind of here and there throughout the conversation, but um, I'd love if you could just sort of summarize your overall thoughts about the book.
1: Again, it's it's a little tough to know um, exactly what the intended audience was, mm-hmm. you know, like when it was initially. And maybe you could speak more on that, but it, it was kind of like a YA before it was like a YA, like that that sort of thing.
0: I it feel like it doesn't really have like an intended age audience. And, and I think yeah, that was sort of the yeah. weird thing about like books meant for teens or like written about. And I don't know, this book, it just like doesn't seem to have the perfect reader. I feel like it's meant to be pretty universal. And I feel like no matter yeah. when you read it, you can take something from it. I would imagine that now it's like billed as YA and I'm sure if yeah, you look it up on yeah. Amazon, it's like 12 and up, which is the the sort of YA bracket. Mm. But I would yeah. imagine that at the time it was meant maybe to be a little bit more universal.
1: Yeah. So I think like my general impression was that I was just very pleasantly surprised at just how deep like the, the concepts were. Mm-hmm. I mean, just all of the things that we've touched on, on here as far as like being like numb to feelings and all this, like this is stuff that I've only kind of recently really as an adult started thinking about. So the fact that it was present in a book that could even be comprehended and enjoyed by a 12, 13 year old thought was really great. You know, it's really, this is mainly because I've uh, gotten into the wormhole. That is Disney plus, but <laughs> I, I, when I was reading this, I was also starting boy meets world from the beginning. Amazing. And I know there's a weird, there's a weird tie to make, but with boy meets world, because that was like my childhood Bible, essentially, when I was yeah. growing up. And when I've been rewatching that, uh, one would highly recommend both *The Giver* <laughs> and rewatching *Boy Meets World*, if you've watched it or not. Um, but with like, *Boy Meets World*, like in the first five episodes, they're getting into prejudice and protesting the the Pledge of Allegiance. And I'm like, man, like they were covering some decent stuff for considering who was the even potential audience for this uh, even if it could be enjoyed by a wider audience you know it's obviously going to find people who are younger too so I was very uh, I was I was very pleasantly surprised
0: this teen pop culture stuff can be pretty sneaky if you really look uh, yeah, at it as an know, adult you're like I wow I was learning a lot and I didn't even know <laughs> it's
1: it's like, like, Hey, cool. wait a minute
0: <laughs> hey, I was trying to just have fun, watch Bluey's World. Um, yeah, I have to yeah. get Disney Plus so I can go down that wormhole. I haven't, I haven't started it yet, but I need to. uh yeah. need to just throw my life away on that. Maybe
1: one of these weekends. Oh yeah, no. Listen, it's like yeah, it's it's like that. It's a little colder out. Oh yeah, it's, uh,
0: it's, tis, it's the tis the season. Tis the season. Yeah. So I know you said that you're not um, a huge like fiction reader, um, but at the end of the show, I always ask my guests if there's any books that they would recommend to our listeners and it can be anything, it doesn't have to be fiction. Um, if there's anything nonfiction that you've read lately that you love, or it doesn't even have to be recent. Like if there's any books that you'd recommend to our listeners period, um, I'm sure they'd love to hear about them.
1: I actually have, this is going to be such a dorky recommendation, but, and not like the like, Oh, it's like this one, (laughs) you know, my answer to this question is always this book that I read last year. It's called Difficult Conversations, like how like the most important conversations in life and how to navigate them or something like that. Maybe that could be in the show notes. I'll send this over and all that so you can have like the proper title. But it's just like a very practical book on just thinking about conversation and uh, little tweaks you can kind of like make. Uh, I like I read it last year and and I'll try to like TLDR like this story, but I was uh, at like my uncle's retirement party and he was a teacher and just like for context, like I'm, I was like in media and then now I'm in like user experience uh, and my uncle's a a teacher, he's a science teacher. So our worlds don't really overlap very much and I've kind of gotten used to my family just not understanding what I do and also not me understanding their world. So last year, I was just like really stressed out at work and I had some other things going on. And I remember him asking me, just kind of like the standard, like, oh, how's work? How's like, whatever. And I was like, you know what? Actually, it's bad. It's really, really bad. I'm like really stressed out. Uh, and then he actually recommended this book. So it's like, I think it came out in the 70s or 80s. And anyway, so I think I, I have an attachment to it just because it ended up being like this really unexpected way for me to connect to him. But what I really like about it is there's just so many little takeaways and two that I can remember and I'll try to do justice to explaining this. One was the importance of like taking accusation out of your voice and that being like an effective way to have conversations. So say like, you know, you said something that hurt my feelings Uh, instead of me being like, you know, like you always like say this and like, and then I'm like putting you on the defense. But instead, if I reframe that as Oh, like when you said this, I felt this way. So in a way that, that could almost be like this weird uh tie into the giver in the beginning, like the sharing of feelings. Like yeah. they could have, oh we benefit from that's I could almost see them structuring their their conversations that way where it's like they actually they kind of did. Yeah, that's uh, true. And I remember yeah, like they kind of said like You know, I felt really, oh, this is creepy now. It's like I felt really frustrated when, like, so-and-so broke the rules at playtime or uh, there was something like that. Yeah, I remember it gave me a weird flashback to to this book.
0: Tying Uh, it all together.
1: Yeah, yeah, because it, yeah, right, right. So it takes out the defensiveness, so Mm -hmm. they'll be more open to hearing you if they're not, like, ready to fight um, and, like, defend themselves. And then the other one was realizing that everyone's the main character and protagonist like in their own story in their head you know so kind of like being able to realize that and be like oh like so I'm like a side character in Nikki's life so like what what is like Nikki's view of me like in this situation and kind of just transporting yourself into their narrative a bit and then working from there Uh, I thought that that was like really powerful too and there's a lot of other little things but I'm just like a sucker for that stuff because those books, you know, they can be hundreds of pages long and, and sometimes I don't feel like they need to be. They could just literally be like a one sheet of points. But just I, I really value the takeaways that I get from books like that. So anyway. that's no, that that great.
0: Super yeah. like – actionable and helpful and useful in a lot of areas of life so I will include a link to that in the show notes for this episode along with a link to The Giver Um, I think it's very clear that Brett and I would both highly recommend a read or a reread it's a really interesting book Brett thank you so much for coming out of your nonfiction comfort zone to talk about this book with me you did a great job I know you were you know you're a little bit of a guinea pig on this for you but I think you did a great job and it was really fun talking with you so thank you so much
1: thank you so much no this was really really a lot of fun Really appreciate it.
0: Maybe you're going to become like a fiction guy
1: now. That's it. That's it. The start of a whole new journey.
0: Yeah, you let me know when you get to the end of the Giver Quartet and we'll talk.
1: Oh, yeah. Listen, again, it's that tis the season.
0: That's true. You have plenty of time. It's that The holidays are here. Um, Enjoy yeah. all of those Giver books you're going to read
1: now. Sounds good. I will maybe give them a try. Oh, oh. See what I did there? Oh, yeah. oh,
0: oh, 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 yeah! Oh, whoa, whoa! That was a, that was. I even almost missed it. It was so good. It's so sneaky. I know. I, you. know.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah. No. It's very clever.
0: Very clever. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast.